Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Space Business orbital illumination, and horses. But first up, here's the news. Power suits for bankers. Yes, bankers are so rich that they now need externally powered robot suits to lift their money. It's federal budget week in Australia, so money is a touchy subject. The exosuits are called Hybrid Assistive Limb, H-A-L, HAL which is deliberately named after HAL, the artificial intelligence that kills the crew in the movie 2001. They're made by Cyberdyne Incorporated, which is named after the company that massacre humans and reduce the Earth to a wasteland in the Terminator movies. The bank is Japan's Sumitomo Mitsui Banking Corporation. HAL is designed to improve its user's strength, reducing the apparent weight of an item by 40%. If the pilot program proves effective, Sumitomo may expand it to more branches of its bank throughout Japan. The exosuits work by detecting weak bioelectrical signals from the wearer's muscles and drive small motors and power units. You can't buy the suits, you can only rent them, but they're already used in retirement homes and hospitals. Let's hope the names are the only things Cyberdyne's HAL has in common with the science fiction villains. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. At the Orbit Oz meetup held at the Fishburners co-working space for startup businesses, I spoke with Michael Leslie and Toby Nivett. Michael Leslie is the co-founder and technical manager of AU Launch Services, a space startup business based in Adelaide. They're very new, they've only been around for five months, and they want to make your access to space as easy as possible. I began by asking him, what does AU Launch Services do? Um, so AU Launch Services is sort of filling the niche between uh, CubeSat developers, manufacturers, and designers, and launch service providers. So... There's a massive market right now of taking a whole lot of data from CubeSats and applying it to industries and whatnot. Um, so there's a lot of people around the world that are developing CubeSats, and especially in Australia, developing CubeSats. 
there's a whole lot of launch service providers all around the world who are doing you know launching either as a secondary payload or soon as a primary payload for CubeSats. But there's no real starting point in between for people to come and say, hey, I want to be involved in the space industry. Where do I start from? So AE Launch Services fills that niche by essentially being the first point of contact for anyone that wants to get involved in the industry. Any client can come to us and say, hey, I have this satellite or I have this service that I want to provide. I want to be involved in the space industry. How do I go about it? And so AE Launch Services will say, okay, we'll contact a launch service provider for you. We'll you know, contact someone who can design your CubeSat satellite or your payload for you. We'll take care of the insurance side of things. We'll deal with the government and get you an overseas launch certificate. We'll get you spectrum access. So everything that goes on behind the scenes for a space mission, we take care of so that the client can focus on building their satellite. So you're facilitating space industry? Yeah, so we want to make access to space as easy as possible. So at the moment, there's a sort of, not so much a stigma around the space industry, but from the outside, it can seem very daunting and very difficult and very challenging for anyone that wants to get involved. You know, you look at the rocket scientists and the astronomers and you think just how difficult it can be. But it's, if, as long as we can communicate to people that there are a number of companies within Australia, but also around the world that provide a whole lot of services that you can utilize quite easily to get you involved in the space industry that... We want to take care of that for you. We want to get you involved in, in space and get as many people as possible involved in the space industry. What are some of the steps? If you are getting into the space industry in Australia, you've got a satellite to launch or you've got some services connected with space. What are the things they have to get in a row? Because you mentioned some things like spectrum and certificates and there's legal, there's a, there's a Space Activities Act. Can you talk about what are the, all these things that are needed? Yeah, so all, all space objects that are designed and built in Australia and launched, most, well, for now, launched overseas, all fall under the Space Activities Act, which was first developed in 1998, and it basically is the legal framework which surrounds all space objects developed here in Australia. Um, everything that's built here has to follow it. There's no, there's no way around it. Um, if you try and go around it, it's going to make life hell for you. So the best way forward is to, is to work with the government as closely as possible. So what we'll do is we'll come to our client and say, okay, what is it that you want to do? So they'll come to what they'll say, oh, you know, we have this payload or this satellite and we have this budget and we're looking at this time frame. what can we do? And so we'll go to a launch service provider and figure out all the, the waiting period for a launch and the orbital parameters that they have and the risk associated with it. Then we'll go to an insurance provider and say, hey, these guys want to do this. How much do they need to get covered for? We'll do a full risk analysis as well for them, for the insurance and for the overseas launch certificate. So Anyone that wants to launch overseas needs an overseas launch certificate from the government as well, which has to be ticked off by the Minister for Industry. So basically, we, we fill out this risk analysis, we fill out all the documentation you need for the certificate. That gets passed on to the Space Coordination Office, they tick it off. That goes to the Minister's lawyers, they tick it off, and then it goes up to the Minister and he'll, t- and he'll approve it. So there's a lot of middlemen that has to go through for to be approved. And that can be, you know, the order of three or four months waiting time for that to be approved. And that's the kind of time that is really critical to CubeSat designers more. Like they, don't, they don't want to be waiting around four months to get approval before they start working on it again. So while they are working on designing their CubeSat or developing their payload and whatnot, we'll, we'll take care of all, this, all the certificate side of things. We'll find the launch service provider. We'll, give, we'll get them access to Spectrum as well. So obviously they need to communicate to their CubeSat and back down again without inter- interfering with anyone else. So that's another thing that a lot of a lot of people developing their CubeSats don't understand and don't realise, but we, we take care of all that for them. So again, they don't have to worry about it. They just have to worry about building their satellite and building their communications payload. 
How did you get into facilitating other people's space businesses? There's a lot of people around the world building CubeSats already. So obviously there's people like Planet Labs, universities around the world. We know that SpaceX is wants to launch a CubeSat um, constellation for the internet and so does Virgin Galactic. And there's, there's enough CubeSat developers around the world. Similarly, there's also a lot of launch service providers around the world. So people like Ariane Space in Europe or United Launch Alliance in America and a whole, you know, SpaceX a whole, and a whole lot of up and coming smaller launch service providers like Rocket Lab in New Zealand and Firefly in the US as well. So both those markets are certainly covered, but there's sort of the, the middle ground between the two being able to give people access to one of them or both of them or sort of almost linking the two is not really done very well across the world. It's not communicated very well to people that this can be done by certain people. So we, we come in and fill that niche of linking CubeSat manufacturers to launch service providers, liaising with the government. We're filling a niche that no one else is, is filling at the moment, not, especially not in the Southeast Asian and Pacific region. So that's sort of how we came to be a couple, it was a couple of months ago actually. My business partner and I met up for over and just over coffee. We decided let's do something in space, and so we sort of we we looked at where the gaps where the gaps were in the market, and we sort of got uh, we, we did get a little bit pushed towards this direction. But in the end, we decided that this is there's a need for this in Australia. Everyone wants to build cubesats and build satellites and launch into space, but no one wants to deal with the government. No one wants to do the administrative side of things, and so people are happy to come talk to us and have us do all the all the administrative stuff for them. And if people want to look for you online, where do they go? Uh, yeah, so our website is aulaunchservices.com. Again, our, all our contact details are on there as well. So our email is info at aulaunchservices.com. We're happy to field any and all questions regarding the space industry as well. So even if you want to get in, this, in space industry and you don't know how, you can talk to us. If you don't even know what you want to do in the space industry, you just want something to do with it, come talk to us. We, we want to be the first point of contact in Australia for people that, to get involved in the space industry. Keep your ears open and your eyes peeled for this space because the, uh, the Australian space industry is certainly going to kick off in the, next, in the next year or so. There's some very exciting developments, which I'm, I'm sure people will hear about in the next couple of days. Oh, not a couple of days, sorry, a couple of months. Yes, yeah, exciting times ahead. Well, Michael Wesley, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Michael Leslie of AU Launch Services. You can find them online at aulaunchservices.com. Light artist. Toby Nivard is working on a project called Orbital Illumination. Toby also has an exhibit in the Sydney Vivid Festival this month. I began by asking him to describe Orbital Illumination. Trying to launch a whole bunch of space mirrors to reflect sunlight down to Earth, about 30 metre diameter spots, and we're going to try and... The blue sky idea is to light rock concerts and operas from space, but also potentially applications in search and rescue, and in um, maybe military, that sort of thing. And how did the idea come to you? The inspiration came from uh, seeing a talk at Vivid Ideas in 2014, where I learned about a Russian uh, program where they successfully launched a space mirror in 1992, the Zanamia project. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And they had a, off the top of my head, they had a 20 metre mirror and they produced a spot five kilometres wide on the Earth's surface, as bright as the full moon. And, um, yeah, for my project, if I can produce full moon brightness, that's the kind of base standard, but ideally I'd like a much narrower, brighter beam, and I'd like to achieve that with CubeSats. Uh, and the question is, what kind of optics, what kind of mirror assembly are we going to need? And that's not a question I can answer, so I'm looking for collaborators at the moment uh, to try and do a feasibility study. 
because it almost sounds like a CubeSat, you know, 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres might be too small. Are you going to do a feasibility study with weather balloons first? Weather balloons, uh, we'll get to a stage where we use weather balloons, I think. But I think before we get to that, we want to address whether with the distances involved in satellites, whether it's going to work at all, just doing the maths. Um, but definitely in terms of steering systems and in terms of... Um, yeah, proof of concept of control, I think, uh, weather balloons is going to be an important step. So who are you going to get to do the maths? Is that your area? Uh, no, that's not my area. So I'm kind of a technical artist as far as artists go and in terms of, you know, entertainment technology and interactive technology and I'm a coder. But I've got to admit that this is a project where I'm going to have to go to um, people far more expert than I, certainly in terms of physics and engineering on these um, aerospace items. And you're going to be presenting an artwork in Vivid this year? Uh, Yes, so in Vivid 2015, I've got an artwork called Beat Dice, uh, which is in the First Fleet Park, which is between the MCA and uh, Circular Key Station, little patch of green grass there, probably be a patch of mud after day 10, but anyway. The project's called Beat Dice. It uses a bunch of cubes, and you create a sculpture by stacking the cubes in a sculpture. You also arrange a piece of music. So the idea is that you're composing a music and yeah, creating a light sculpture at the same time. So different cubes are corresponding to different parts of the music? Yep. So the first cube might be a kick drum, for instance. And um, they've all got dice patterns on them. So you put the first one down and you hear a kick drum. It goes... Lights up like a kick drum. Roll... Lights up in time to the kick drum, I should say. You roll it to another side and it goes same instrument but a different pattern then you add the next one and it's a snare etc and then you have kind of melody cubes and um, other cubes and it's also designed with the all the cubes are embossed so that if you were blind or vision impaired you could feel the sides of the cubes and I guess ideally I could see a performer using these in such a way that they are not even looking at the cubes The kind of artistic idea at the heart of it is I want to create an interface that lets people get very quickly to the stage where they're jamming, where they're actually having this kind of creative improvisational moment. As an artist, I find that's the most powerful when you feel you're sort of like, you can picture what you want to do and then you do it and then you can work with other people and yeah, improvise something good. Back to the orbital illumination. In your talk, you mentioned there were two risks Ah, so the two risks, well, this is from talking to people so far. The two risks that people bring up, uh, the first risk is kind of people are like, oh, I don't want, want it burn us. And people imagine kind of a giant magnifying glass burning ants and death rays and things. I don't think the intensity of the light, you know, it's just sunlight. It's traveling a little bit further to get to us. So in fact, it's going to be slightly less intense in pure terms. I guess there is potentially a risk of kind of annoying pilots or something like that. I think that's something we'll have to look into. I think there's a chance that actually we'll just conclude it won't. It's not that bad, but possibly we'll have to look into avoiding airports or the strips of area where planes are coming into land, that kind of thing. I think the second risk is about light pollution. During the Russian program, the, I think, a, a International Society of Astronomers, could be called the International Society, wrote a big kind of open letter saying they uh, didn't want to see large-scale illumination of cities from space because they thought it would harm the quality of their observations from Earth. And we have to crunch the numbers, but I would say the strategy with our project is that, in fact, 
It's more like fireworks, kind of occasional use project uh, or used for emergencies and much narrower beams. I would think that it would be far less of a risk to scientists and hand in hand, it would be far less of a risk to regular people in terms of keeping them up at night or something like that. Again, we could look at exclusion zones around observatories uh, as another mitigation. There's a solar sailing project coming up soon? Yes. Now, I've only just learned about this, but it looks very interesting. So it's a CubeSat-based project where they want to get a CubeSat into the orbit of the moon, and they're going to launch it up the regular way on a rocket, but then they're going to use a solar sail that unfolds at a far larger diameter than the CubeSat itself. And given I need to steer my mirrors, I need a level of um, rigidity, but certainly there could be a lot of potential there in terms of unfolding something. And yeah, if their deployment system goes well... I'd definitely be interested in co-opting some of that technology. And in fact, the Russian project originally, it was sort of this consortium of uh, the Russian Space Sail Federation or something like that. A group that was interested in solar sails was kind of pushing for this project that eventually became their illumination projects, their space mirror project. I should look for allies in the um, space sail area. So my website is www.tobyk.com.au, but I'll soon be launching, hopefully during Vivid, uh, www.orbitalillumination.com. It's nice to have a big project. Well, Toby, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for your time. That was light artist Tony Nivett. You can see his work in the Sydney Vivid Festival and online at tobyk.com.au. You can check out Orbit Oz at meetup.com slash orbitoz. And finally, the next in our series of FameLab New South Wales Talks. FameLab is a competition for public communication of science by early career researchers, run every year by the British Council. The British Council is an international organisation promoting education in the arts and sciences. The judges for the New South Wales Heat of the Competition were Helen O'Neill, the Country Director of British Council Australia, Dr Angela Crean from the University of New South Wales School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences, where she studies non-genetic inheritance, parental effects and sperm quality and plasticity. And Rose Hiscock, Director of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. They judged on the values of good science, persuasive communication and style. The host of the night was the surfing scientist and star of ABC TV's Catalyst, Ruben Meerman. Barbara Padolino is a horse vet from Italy who's researching transport stress in horses. The key thing to keep in mind while you listen to her speak is that she brought a wonderful horse puppet onto the stage. Every time she asks the audience a question, the horse shakes his head for no and nods his head for yes. Later, if you hear her putting on a funny voice, it's the horse that's talking. Barbara operated her puppet horse very well and had the audience eating out of her hand. We're going to welcome Barbara Padalino. She's going to speak to us about transport stress in horses. Please make welcome Barbara Padalino. Hi, I'm Barbara. I'm a horse vet from Italy. I'm here in Australia to do my PhD, and the topic is transport stress in horses. To explain to you my research, uh, I'll start with the questions. Have you ever seen those big trucks transporting horses on the road? Have you ever asked yourself, wonder what the horses inside the truck is thinking or doing? 
I asked myself these questions, and this is why I became interested in this topic. Studying, I discovered that every day, millions of horses travel around the world, and they have similar feelings as most of, of us. They do not want travel, they do not want work, and they can be fearful of transport means. But the difference between us and the horses is that we can plan our journey, and if we are feeling tired, we can choose to have a rest. Horses cannot speak. They cannot plan their journey, and usually they must compete after a trip. So it has been proven that transport is a mental and physical stressor for the horses. And due to this stress, they can develop serious disease. As a, a horse vet, I have seen horses die after a long trip. So I asked myself, what can I do to help the horses? And this is why I'm doing a PhD. I'm recording the horse behavior inside the truck to understand what are the behavioral needs of the horses to satisfy them in the future. I'm also designing a new instrument to monitor the physiological parameter of the horses, which, when limit value are reached, will notify the driver by text message. For instance, if the horse is really scared inside the truck and his heart rate becomes too high, a text message can be sent saying, please stop the car, or you are a terrible driver, go slowly, man. <laughs> Finally, I identify some stress biomarker in horse breath. The method is similar to the random brain test and the alcohol level. I collect the horse breath with a mask, and uh, I'll give some reference value for this stress biomarker so that in the future all horses can be checked after a trip and the owner can understand in real time if the horse needs rest, a therapy, or is fit for racing. In conclusion, at the end of my PhD, I would like to propose new best practice for equine transportation. I hope the horses will no longer suffer from transport stress, and the horse voice will be, let's see the road, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Great, I love your horse, <laughs> Mr. Ed. So, do you notice a lot of variability between horses in how they cope or respond to the transport? Yeah, for sure. There is a, a, an effect of the breed, there is an effect of the temperament, and uh, there is also an effect of the hilt of the horses and the fitness level of the horses. All, and there is also some research uh, who connect also the past experience with the transport stress. I mean, if they got a bad experience uh, in the past, then they can just get much more stressed the next time. It's like they get already scared when they see the truck. Right, so do you think your research, you'll be able to take it to like therapy for horses? So you're not just monitoring, but you can actually prepare the horses rather than just respond? I'm studying also the behavior, so it's like, uh, from the behavior point of view, it's important to do some training to the horses. So, I mean, it's already proven that if you train the horse, uh, uh, just loading, stay inside the truck and unloading and do very good association, he will just go better with the transport stress. Um, in my PhD, I'm trying to 
prevent disease. So I'm just studying not only the monitoring, but also some supplement to, to give to the horses before, so they can be healthier after. How, how are you dealing with the human element in this? So presumably stress in, in horses, uh, some of it's related to you know, bad driving or bad handling along the way. And, and presumably the, the organisations that allow you into the transportation units to stress are probably on their best behaviour. <laughs> are, are you managing that in any way or are you just taking it as the horse behaviour as itself? No, no, no. Part of the PTD also doing a survey um, with the people who are really connected with horses, so like horse training, horse breeder and the horse transport company to really have a feedback from them, understand how they actually uh, manage the transport and so hopefully then have an association between the management and the actual problem so that then probably we can also uh, improve the know-how of the people who are really involved. How did you get from horses to puppetry? <laughs> this one? It's homemade. <laughs> yeah, I, I was not able to find one, so I did by myself. <laughs> Self-taught. Well, fantastic. Thank you. Can we have another round of applause? Thank you very much. Thank you, Barbara. And uh, I think we're off to a pretty amazing start. We've had mathematics of bacteria, we've had plants, we've had human health, spiders, and now transport of horses. That was Barbara Padolino talking about transport stress in horses at FameLab. When the British Council put up the video of her talk, I'll embed it on the Diffusion show page. And a big thank you to Andrew from Melbourne for being the first listener to choose to make an ongoing monthly donation. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. I don't know if it'll get us more listeners, but it looks good. Follow me on Twitter, at Ian Wolfe. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2HHH in hornsby Karingai, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com And check the website for links and photos about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Hello, I'm Mr. Red. (laughs) 
A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Red. Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Red. People yakety-yak the streak and waste your time a day. But Mr. Ed will never speak unless he has something to say. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and this one will talk till his voice is hoarse. You never heard of a talking horse? Well, listen to this. I am Mr. Ed. <laughs> 